0: Welcome, Zechariah, Chap. well, week two. We're going to do uh, four visions tonight, but I want to go back and talk about a few other things. First of all, um, I want to remind you that a week from tomorrow night is our second backstories. Can you put the lights down for this slide so we can see who it is that we're going to be talking to? There you go. You- Anybody recognize these? These guys both go to our church. Anybody recognize either one of them? That's Eric on the left and Mike on the right. Um, both of them are really smart scientists doing different things, but that's who we're going to be interviewing. They didn't, interesting, they, they both have been going here a while, but um, they didn't know each other until I met with them a few Sundays ago to talk about how we're going to structure these, this interview and everything, and they really hit it off. So I'm... I'm very hopeful that this will be uh, really good. Both of them have really interesting backstories too. So um, anyway, so you can turn the lights back up now. That was, some people got scared. Um, here's the other thing I want to mention. <clears throat> I thought about this last week. Maybe this is TMI. I don't know. If it is, will you let me know. But don't email me. Just come up and tell me. That'd be easier. Um, w- when I read out loud, I struggle. Has anybody ever noticed that I kind of struggle when I read scripture out loud? Okay, you're just being nice. Okay, I'm mildly dyslexic, so I mix up words occasionally. And I really struggle sometimes. And and I feel like it sounds like I haven't read the passage before I'm reading it out loud, which would be a really bad thing to do, you know, to be completely unprepared. I want you to know I've read the passage several times. It's just I struggle reading out loud. I hated reading out loud. As a kid in grade school, anybody ever get called on to read out loud in grade school? It was the worst moment of the, yeah, it was my worst moment. Anyway, so, but I'm trying to conquer, I've been trying for 60 years to conquer it. Anyway, so if you get frustrated with my reading out loud, that's that's what it is, okay? It's not really bad, it's just kind of mild. It was, um, it, it, it hindered my learning Hebrew, too, because if you, if you know, we read English um, left to right, but Hebrew is read right to left, so that just really furthered the problem when I started re, uh, learning ancient Hebrew. Anyway, just to let you know in case that's something that you would notice. Um, uh, so last week, we talked about the opening of Zechariah's ministry. starts in 520. We're already into five. his visions on the night of 519, February 15th, 519. Um, he came back with the return of the Babylonian exiles um, in... 538. So he was among the first group that came back. The book of Zechariah is uh, more futuristic than most prophets in terms of what it's trying to say. It doesn't mean it's totally futuristic, but there's more stuff about what's going to happen in the future rather than just applying God's word to people's behavior and saying, you're headed for trouble. There's some of that, but it's very futuristic, very messianic. There's more than uh, 40... Uh, specific, explicit uh, New Testament references to the book of Zechariah, uh, which makes it pretty important. I think only Jeremiah and Isaiah have more, and um, scholars call it a mini Isaiah, because it's very similar in some respects to Isaiah, although the visions are a little bit crazier than what you might find in Isaiah. I wanted to go back, though, to the second vision, uh, the shorter vision that we went uh, Here's Here's the other frustration that I sometimes have and Joe's here again tonight, and he knows that this happens to me all the time because we talk about this. Um, very often, I, I work really hard to prepare uh, sermons and Bible studies and all that, and, and I just I, I take a long time, and I edit, and I think about it, and sometimes I try things out. Um, and then I'm always frustrated when, after I've already delivered the message, I think of something that would have been really, really helpful that I So then it's like, I want to go, well, tonight I get to go back and do that. I don't usually get to do that on Sunday. So that second vision, when Zechariah writes, and I lifted up my eyes and saw, and behold, four horns, I said to the angel who talked with me, what are these? And he said, those are the horns that have scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. So the enemies, the four enemies. Um, and the Lord showed me four craftsmen, and I said, what are these coming to do? And he said, uh, these are the horns that scattered Judah, so no one raised his head. And these have come, the four uh, craftsmen, to terrify the four horns, to cast down the horns of the nations who lifted up their horns against the land of Judah to scatter it. We talked about how the horns symbolize invincible, invincible seemingly invincible military power. Okay? And it suddenly hit me today that the best illustration, and here you go, so cut me some slack. The best illustration of this is actually Star Wars. <laughs> now, now, you have to cut me some slack, because I'm not a Star Wars guy. I, yeah, I know. I, the first three were OK, I, 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 a little bit more than endured them. But I'm not like this Star Wars fanatic. I have no Star Wars action figures. I, 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 don't, I never had a lightsaber. I don't talk about it at all. Um, and I hate all the, other mo- all the other movies are absolute garbage, and I have to be dragged to see them. My opinion, sorry, Cody doesn't like John Mayer musically. I know that offends people. I don't like Star Wars that much. But, but the first three Star Wars really are kind of like um, uh, Zechariah here. The four horns are, now cut me some slack here if I get this wrong, but it's, it's Darth Vader and the Death Star that seems completely invincible. Is that right? the enemy, completely invincible, okay? And those who are rising up against the Death Star seem completely outnumbered, completely out-resourced. They don't have the military. Remember remember that, I don't know if it was the first movie or the second movie, but those big moving mechanical things and they tied the ropes around the legs and tripped them and all this stuff. Okay, that's the picture right here. And the four craftsmen understand are Luke Skywalker, Han Solo, Chewbacca and R2-D2. They're the four. I'm telling you, there's nothing original in Hollywood. Star Wars is Zechariah. That's all it is. So think of it that way, okay? So does that help you understand now? This is what God is saying. He's saying, you have no business hanging in there with the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Egyptians, or anybody, the Philistines even, but I'm going to take care of you. This is about putting your... Uh, faith and trust in me and your salvation in me. So now that that's out of the way and some of you are thankful for that, let's dive into the four visions for tonight. So a lot of reading tonight. That's another reason why I brought that up. So chapter 2, all of chapter 2 is vision number 3. It's the man with the measuring line. And I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, a man with a measuring line in his hand. And I said, what are you doing? And he said to me, to measure Jerusalem, to see what is its width and what is its length. And behold, the angel who talked with me came forward, and another angel came forward to meet him and said to him, Run, say to that young man, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as villages without walls. As villages without walls. In their context, that's weird. As villages without walls, because of the multitude of people and livestock in it. And I will be to her a wall of fire all around, declares the Lord. And I. And I will be the glory in her midst. Verse 6. Up, up, flee from the land of the north, declares the Lord. For I have spread you abroad as the four winds of heaven, declares the Lord. Up, escape to Zion, you who dwell with the daughter of Babylon. For thus says the Lord of hosts, after his glory sent me to the nations who plundered you. For he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. Behold, I will shake my hand over them. And they shall become plunder for those who served them. Um, one way this is translated is they shall become spoil to the spoiler. Okay? So the, the spoiler, uh, the, one that, the, the, the one that was winning, is now going to become the spoil. Okay? Um, then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me. Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I come and I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. And many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day, and shall be my people. Many nations will be my people. And I will dwell in your midst, and you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. And the Lord will inherit Judah as his portion in the Holy Land, and will again choose Jerusalem. Be silent, all flesh, before the Lord, for he has roused himself from his holy dwelling. So we saw this measuring line introduced in chapter 1, verse uh, 16, it's, It's what is used to uh, measure out the parcels in a a city, Uh, figure out where all the buildings and the houses and all that stuff. Uh, They're surveyors is is the best way to say it. A carpenter or a a construction worker would use a plumb line. The surveyors would use the um, measuring lines. And so now we have this vision that begins with the foundational and earnest work of preparing the city for parcels and walls. And they need walls. So when they returned in 538, remember, they started on the temple. That lasted three and a half years. In 535, they quit working on the temple. Haggai tells us that the reason they quit working on the temple was because they were more concerned about working on their own houses. So they just gave up working on the temple. They hadn't even started on the wall. And, and cities needed walls back then. And um, they went decades without a wall. It wasn't until 445 that Nehemiah was given a vision in Persia, all the way in Susa, in the citadel. Uh, And this is decades after. So think, 538 now, all the way to 445, so almost a century later, that Nehemiah gets this vision that he needs to go to Jerusalem and finish the wall. There had been various fits and starts with the wall over the years, but Nehemiah finally gets the proper documentation uh, from the king of Persia, and he goes back and he begins work on the wall and it takes him seven and a half weeks to finish the wall it's truly an act of god after nearly a century of waiting of fits and starts and everything but god has a twist for this whole plan with the wall this is a fascinating vision um, because it's largely about walls and it's true cities of the earth worldly kingdom cities had need for walls i I spent a lot of time, when I was uh, working on my undergraduate at GCU, actually studying the importance of walls around ancient cities. And, and I was fast. I don't know why I was fascinated, but it was just, it was just really interesting to me. And, and the strategies that people would use to try to bring down the walls in order to attack a city. And, and I think the, re, the thing that got me interested in it was, was how the Medo-Persian Empire actually conquered Babylon not by scaling the walls not by knocking down the walls because the walls of babylon were the greatest walls ever built around a city in history up until that time they just rerouted the euphrates river and walked in you know but they had these things called siege machines has anybody ever heard of those so they had these siege machines and you would you would run this siege machine on these wheels up and try to battery try to ram the walls but the danger in that, of course, anybody know the danger of being one of those guys that had to run the siege machine? Yeah, exactly. So they had boiling oil and they would pour... It, it sounds like this wasn't a really a lot of fun, the way they did this stuff back then. It, was, it sounded a little bit um, violent. But they, the cities needed these walls because there are people always constantly attacking. So walls for defense, walls for safety, walls for peace, walls for identity... The Babylonians certainly placed a large part of their identity in their tremendous walls. If you know about the Babylonian walls, they were, so, they were very high, six or seven stories high um, compared to today's buildings. And they were very wide. Uh, historians tell us that they used to have chariot races around the top of the wall around Babylon and they had four chariots abreast. That's how wide the wall was. Nobody was getting through this wall. Okay, That's why they had to reroute the um, river, And they place a big part of their identity in it, too. And then they had walls for organization. But in God's kingdom, he's going to be the wall. He's going to be the wall. There's not going to be a physical wall needed. So there's actually both a temporal and, a, and a, an eternal application to the wall part of this vision. Temporally, this vision is, is actually about the Jews' Achilles heel. They never seem to get right their need for total dependence upon God. They could just never get that right. And we Christians struggle with that today as well. There's all kinds of stuff we're willing to give Jesus, but we won't give him the stuff that we're really concerned about or the big stuff or the stuff that we want to really be in charge of controlling, trying to control the, outline, out, the outcome, which of course is laughable, right? Okay? Well, the Jews almost always, as part of that cycle of rebellion that we talked about last week, they'd start, they were fine with God, and then they'd start to walk away from God, and as God started to press in and the prophets started coming, it would actually push them further away and they'd go deeper in their rebellion, and then disaster would hit and then they kind of come back and they'd be restored with God and they'd start all over. Um, as part of that cycle of rebellion, they would start to put their faith in other things. Certainly idols and false gods were one of them. But what kind of idols and false gods? Numbers. In uh, Chronicles. One of the worst times that King David has uh, is when he takes a census later in his life, and the census was actually to count um, his warriors, his horses, and his chariots, because he wanted to feel secure. He wanted to feel better about himself. He wanted to feel safe. And God had a pretty serious consequence for David doing that, because it was David putting his faith and trust in numbers in military strength. Um, They would put their faith in wealth. Solomon did that. Uh, In alliances and treaties, Solomon did that as well. So they would team up with other nations and thinking that was gonna be okay, and God saying, look, you need to be a light to the nations, but you don't need to appropriate other nations' military power to protect you. I'm here to protect you. The Jews never got that either. Obviously, pagan gods, they turned to pagan gods. Bethel in the north, um, that city was just known for all of the actual pagan god worship uh, in, in, uh, for God's people. They put their faith in magic, and of course they put their faith in worldly wisdom. Kind of sounds like us, right? We put our faith in the same stuff, okay? So ultimately, here's the point, ultimately a wall or any other worldly device Is not going to save the Jews, and it's not going to save us either. And please don't hear a political statement in that. This is a Bible study, okay? I'm not going after Trump. I'll let you know when I go out. I will let you know, okay? I I am not into subtleties and subterfuge, okay? Now, I do admit I was talking about Bernie on Sunday when I said, no, I wasn't. I wasn't. I was just kidding. I'm kidding, okay? The point is only God can protect and provide, ultimately. Ultimately, that's where we need to have our faith, okay? So eternally, this vision is of the new Jerusalem as described and promised in Revelation. And God's glory is celebrated and is what gives us sustenance. And really, sustenance is what we're all looking for, right? Um, I'm very close to having May's backstories figured out. Um, I'm not exactly sure who all the panel's gonna be but I know Chad D. Miguel is going to be one of them. Um, uh, and, and what we're going to talk about is, is in the marketplace um, how worried we are about scarcity. That that's what drives us in our lives and in the marketplace. Everything we do. And, and here you go. I, we're in Arcadia. This, this should be the, the last place where we should be worried about scarcity. We're, we're worried about scarcity in Arcadia. They're worried about scarcity in North Scottsdale. A Couple of things that I've really learned about money recently is, number one, money is both meaningful and meaningless. It just depends on the context. And you need to keep those in balance. And here's the other thing. People with money and people who don't have money all have stress about money. It's just that the stress is is of a different kind. Okay, And and so we're all running on this, this worry of scarcity, a lack of vulnerability, we're all pretty scared. And it's driving most of our decisions. And this is what God would like, is, is for us to, uh, us to understand that we can, we can come to him and he will give us the sustenance that we need. It might not be the sustenance that we want, right? What happened to my... Oh, this might not be recorded. Gosh, why did I do that? That's weird. Sorry, I forgot to put this on. Oh, well. I was yelling pretty good, though, so it probably picked it up. Okay, sorry for those of you listening on the podcast. All right, there we go. Last time I did this was when Sean Myers is here, so I can't blame him anymore uh, for doing that. I preached half a sermon with, with my mic down over at the other property, and Myers was the one that finally just walked up on stage and took it off my shoulder. And Yeah, it was one of those moments. Anyway, so... Um, Ultimately, God is saying, this is the sustenance you need, is from me. And like I said, it may not be the sustenance we want, okay? Uh, the sustenance that I desire is not necessarily um, the sustenance that is, is going to meet my need. It's usually more than what will meet my need for sustenance. And all of us run into that same uh, problem. So, um, This vision also includes the understanding that there have been and always will be threats from the north. Look at verse 6. It seems as though the enemies of of God's people were always coming in from the north. They were always coming in from the north. Um, That makes sense geographically with Assyria because they're to the northeast. It didn't make sense really. If you look at a map, it doesn't really make sense with Babylon because Babylon is due east, 700 miles. So why didn't they just come across? Well, the reason they didn't just come across is because they had to take out the Assyrians first, and then they came in from the north. And then, the, and then w- w- when they came back, they still came in from the north, almost as if they were kind of checking on, on um, what they did to Assyria. So everybody seems to come in, from, all the enemies seem to come in from the north, at least in this context. And so this is God explaining that whoever should attack or stand against God's people, they are accursed and God will judge them. So Isaiah says this, Deuteronomy says this, and then Paul says it in Romans uh, chapter 12. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. If you're looking for vengeance, you need to count on God to give it. Um, and, And God is encouraging his people again to join him. But it's also interesting the way he's encouraging them. He's, he's making a call in this vision, God is, through Zechariah, uh, for also for those who are God's people, the Jews, who have not yet come back to Jerusalem to finally come back to Jerusalem. So historically, we know that before the Babylonians came in and sacked Jerusalem in 605, a bunch of the Jews fled to Egypt and started living there. We also know that after... The Jews were carted, the ones that were in uh, Judah and Jerusalem were carted away to Babylon. And then in 538, uh, when Darius made the edict and they started coming back uh, to Jerusalem, many of the Jews did not come back to Jerusalem. They went further east and went to Susa and decided to go to the capital of Persia. So God is making an appeal through Zechariah to those who are in Egypt and those who are in uh, Susa in Persia to come back. It's time for you to come, uh, to come back, okay? And he wants them to come back for two reasons. Number one, you're missing out on the story of rebuilding. This is going to be a great story, a great comeback story. You're missing out on it, so you need to come back for that. And second of all, I'm going to make the spoiler the spoil. So those who have been spoiling are now going to become the spoil. They're going to become what you collect after the war is won because they're going to be defeated. And yet, and yet, in verse 11, there is also an invitation for these cursed people to join God. There's still an invitation. It's like God won't give up hoping that by extending an invitation, even to those that um, he says he's going to curse in this, maybe they'll come and join us. And I think what we learn from that is that God's anger is not temperamental. How often have you heard in culture that God's anger is described as temperamental or in those type of terms? I don't like that angry God of the Old Testament. He's not temperamental. His anger is actually restorative. The deeper you study when he gets angry, the deeper you begin to understand that what he's seeking is restoration. So there is this, again, this, this picture of grace, forgiveness, and restoration. I just, the more I look at the Old Testament, the more I realize that God is really serious about grace, forgiveness, and restoration, even in the Old Testament. I would even go so far as to say, especially in the Old Testament, because he was patient. He waited hundreds of years to carry out many of his judgments. Most of us struggle to wait a day to do something like that. We just want to get on with it, you know? So, this vision is a great example of the difference between optimism and hope. Uh, and I'm not down on optimism, I'm fine with optimism. Put me down for a yes. For optimism. Um, but I don't really believe that optimism is what the Bible is shooting for. It's shooting for hope, because it talks about hope, not optimism. Um, and, and optimism and hope are two different things. Optimism is evidence based, optimism is usually built on the fact that you can see something that makes you feel like maybe things will turn out okay. With hope, there's often absolutely no evidence that you can point to that things are going to turn out okay. Okay? It's Hebrews 11. Faith is our confidence in what we hope for and the assurance of things unseen. We haven't been able to see those things. So hope, redemption, and salvation are wonderful, and we're blessed to have it, but we are not to sit in it. We are not to languish in complacency. Um, I still struggle probably a little too much. I probably put too much emphasis on this, but the last thing I want to do is grow complacent in ministry because it's easy to coast. If I can just get the church set up so that the money is flowing and everybody's doing what they're supposed to do, I can just kind of hang out and have fun and all that stuff. I don't, I don't want to do, because that's the beginning of the end for churches. I don't know if you know that, but that's the beginning of the end for churches. When you get complacent. Now you may redefine your mission. You may, you may cast a different vision. But I don't want to get complacent. I don't want to languish that way. We're, we're constantly God, called as God's people. Tom, um, the last couple months of his life was so sick. And yet he felt called to testify to Jesus' grace in the midst of, of really... He couldn't go anywhere or do anything. He just wanted the people that came to see him to know that he was placing his faith in Jesus still. And and so we have to respond. And so those of us who are able, we need to to really continue to figure out how to love love and serve our neighbors. Um, Peter, I have a lot of references to 1 Peter 4 in this study for some reason. That's okay. 1 Peter 4, 1 and 2 Since, therefore, Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in flesh, no longer uh, for human passions, but for the will of God. We're supposed to live for the will of God, which we're being called to serve and to love others, even and especially the unlovable. So that's the second vision. Here's uh, the second, uh, I'm sorry, the third vision. Here's the fourth vision. This is maybe the most famous vision in Zechariah. It's the vision of Joshua the high priest and it's chapter three. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before an angel, uh, the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand or a piece of kindling plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with his... I him with garments, and the angel of the Lord was standing by. And the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, Thus says the Lord of hosts, If you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts, and I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. Hear now, O Joshua, the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are a sign. Behold, I will bring my servant, the branch, For behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. Anybody have a stone with seven eyes at home? Anybody? Okay, that's a little bit weird. Okay. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. This is the vision of Joshua and a further explanation of our salvation. This is the only vision with no questions from Zechariah to the angel. It's the only one. And I think it's because it's, it's really clear what's going on here. Not a lot of interpretation necessarily is needed here. Zechariah was able to look at this and he knew exactly what was happening, what was going on, how to interpret everything, so he didn't need to ask it. And, and if you're familiar with other biblical themes uh, if you're familiar with Messianic themes, if you're familiar with the gospel, you see so much of that in this vision. And there's obviously a lot, a lot going on here, um, and some of it should be familiar. And what we can take away from this is that God has a long game. You heard me say that all the time during the uh, Minor Prophets last fall. God has a long game. His game is way longer than ours. He has a plan, and it, he's, he's working his plan We may not see it worked out in our lifetime, probably won't. But he has a long plan, a long game. And it's for the eradication of sin and a coming Savior. And in the midst of that, he calls for his people to be priests of the good news in the midst of that. It's helpful to understand that visions 1 through 3, the three that we've already handled, talk about the restoration of Israel and the blessings that they're going to have but this vision is focused more on the inner health and the life of the people of God. And some of you know this, but I just want to let you know, just so you know, uh, it's significant that his name is Joshua because it's Yeshua from which we get the name Jesus. So there's a correlation there, okay? And Joshua appears to be uh, on trial, he's a sinner accused by Satan. This is something Satan is an expert at. When we think of Satan, obviously we think of temptation. That's kind of a big uh, motif in in Genesis 3 is temptation. But something that Satan is especially good at is once you've fallen into sin is to come and accuse you, to keep you down, to keep you feeling as though uh, you can't recover, you can't be restored, there isn't enough grace to cover your sin. There's no need for you to return to God. There's no need for, you for reconciliation. You're worthless. Now you know how worthless you are. Look at your sin. He's constantly accusing us. Some of the worst damage Satan does to us is in our, quote, worthiness. Okay, And this vision is all about the guilt of our sin and yet our underlying worthiness that God sees in us the guilt of our sin, but the underlying worthiness that God sees in us. So God is our advocate. He's our defense attorney. He's our, rete- our redeemer. And, and let's not be naive either. Satan's case is really strong. Would anybody disagree with that, that Satan's, Satan has a strong case against each one of us? Okay. And without the work of Jesus in our lives, um, we are convicted and sentenced for eternity, and there isn't really much of a trial without Jesus. It's like a summary judgment, okay? And the fact that the clothes represent sin, obviously, the filthy clothes represent sin. This is what reminds us that God does see us as guilty, but also as worthy. So he doesn't he doesn't see us in shame, because shame is about who we are, but he does see us as guilty. Guilt is more about what we've done. And so that's why the clothes are, are symbolizing our sin. We've done bad things, and the reason we do bad things is because of this sin nature that's been imputed to us through the fall in Genesis 3, but yet even in the midst of that, he still loves us. So God, doesn't want to th- God does not want to throw the person out with the sin, okay? Okay. He still loves us. And God's Messiah exonerates us. That's verse verse 8, the capital B branch. God's Messiah will exonerate us. It doesn't mean we aren't guilty, but He's taken away our guilt by His grace. Okay? Then He gets clothed in these clean clothes. The clean clothes represent righteousness, freedom, and redemption poured out onto us and imputed to us through the branch. And then there's this turban. The turban indicates a call to priesthood for all of us. Again, we're called to be priests. Um, Peter talks about this. Paul talks about this. Now, here's the thing. Don't come up and say, okay, so when do I start at Redemption Church as a minister? Because I'm called to be a priest. No, not necessarily vocationally, but in every context that we're in. We're called to be ministers. We're called to be priests. God has given us a mission field. You don't, have to, you don't have to get a passport to be a missionary. In fact, we really need missionaries locally. There's probably a greater need for that than anything else. And once the act of cleansing takes place, the salvation, we're called to walk with God as his ambassadors. Paul calls us uh, Christ's ambassadors in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Okay? And we're to do his will. And foremost among this call is the eschewing of false gods. That's the first thing we need to do, is we need to recognize our idols and get rid of those idols. Uh, When I do premarital counseling, um, one of the things... In fact, this is pretty much the only homework I give the couple, is I give them a little short thing on... um, Idols or false gods to read. Take them five minutes to read it. It's from uh, Stuart Scott's um, book, The Exemplary Husband. That's Stuart Scott, the biblical scholar, not the late ESPN sportscaster. Two different guys, okay? Um, uh, and then they have to identify their idols. We, we need to identify our idols. We need to know what our false gods are because those are like trapdoors for us. And if we don't identify them, we're going to keep walking through these Um, trap doors. So, So we need to get rid of these false gods and then serve. We all have somebody to contribute to the body. Every time we have an open Sunday at Redemption, I'm tempted to do something on 1 Corinthians 12 because I don't think churches understand the importance of 1 Corinthians chapter 12. It's that whole body metaphor that Paul has for us talking about the way we're gifted and the way we all fit together. We all have a part. Nobody's lesser, nobody's greater. We can't uh, act like we don't need some people, and some people can't act like they're not needed. It's so important, and I, and I think we miss the boat on the, Every church misses the boat. So read 1 Corinthians 12 over and over and over. There's all kinds of good stuff in there. And then you go back to verse 2. Remember, uh, no matter how or when you became a follower of Jesus, you and I were also at that time just a stick, a piece of kindling plucked from the fire. All of us were like that. It's not just Joshua, it's us too. In a sense, every one of us, by the power of the gospel, by the saving grace of Jesus Christ, every one of us is a, an incredible comeback victory Okay. that, that appears impossible to achieve. But there is also the reality that God is saying to the religious leaders of his people that they are to lead with an unreproachable integrity, that the leaders are to lead without reproach. In other words, they can't do anything that might indicate that that somebody could could come at them with a moral failing. So you can't morally fail, but you also have to be careful about looking like you might be morally failing, okay? Okay? So James chapter 3, verse 1 says, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. This was um, Billy Graham's thing. He would never um, have a meal with a woman. You know, a lot of people find that sort of antiquated, quaint, or even offensive. It's not a bad idea, Okay. And the stone with the seven eyes is the Messiah's position as the ultimate judge and sovereign Lord over all creation and the fact that he sees everything. And and then at the end, the picture of sitting under a vine and fig tree is symbolic of the kingdom of God and God's um, provision and protection for us. He, He both provides and protects us. Now this is challenging to us because very often he's protecting us and we think He's not providing for us. And then there are other times when He's providing for us, and we think He's not protecting us. And we don't know that until later on we kind of look back and go, oh, I get it now. I get it now. That sale you lost, maybe you lost the sale because that sale was going to be way more trouble than the commission was worth. But you don't know it until later on. I can't tell you how many people in the marketplace have told me that. They're angry that they lost this big sale and then they find out later that might have been the best thing that ever happened to me. The merger didn't happen. The escrow didn't close. Not a bad thing to happen. God was actually protecting me in the midst of that. But he wasn't providing. Well, did you go without a meal? Well, not exactly. But I had that celebration meal all planned and I wasn't able to partake in that. Okay? So... It's, it's his protection and his provision. It's very hard for us because the visible evidence suggests that it's always, almost always suggested it's something else, especially when we're in the, in, the, in the midst of it. If you remember, Sunday I mentioned this. I said, You know, you know how rarely God gives us clarity when we're in the mid, middle of something hard? And the reason he does, there's two reasons I can think of, two primary reasons why he won't. Uh, if he's not giving us clarity in the midst of something really hard, He doesn't. It's because, number one, if he gives us clarity and tells us that everything's going to be fine in the end, then then we're not exercising faith. It's not faith. And second of all, if he gives us clarity, we may not be teachable. We may not learn what we need to learn from that very challenging and difficult thing that we're uh, going through. So in a sense, he's preventing us from being optimists in order that we might seek hope. Hope, the hope that we have in Christ, and this inheritance that we do have. Both Paul and Peter write about the inheritance that we have. We're going to be part of the New Jerusalem, with God as the wall. God is the only source of light, and there's not going to be any temple because Jerusalem is the temple, and God is there with us. Um, I've mentioned this before. It's the best. I, I like bumper stickers. But only if you have one on your car. If you're somebody, by the way, I hope I, hope I don't offend anybody in here. I'm, I'm gonna go check the parking lot before y'all leave. But if you're somebody that has like, if you're one of those persons that has like 30 bumper stickers on the back of your car, okay, I'm not interested. I, I just assume you're really confused. You have no idea what you stand for, and I don't wanna know, okay? But if you've chosen to defile your $30,000 paint job with one bumper sticker, that's significant. You believe in something, and I want to know what it is you believe in, okay? Anyway, years ago at at Grand Canyon University, it's the only time I ever saw this bumper sticker. In the parking lot there, I saw a bumper sticker that said, I can tell the future, dot, 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 and then underneath, God wins. That's it. So Zechariah is essentially saying that here. So now, vision five. Vision five. This gets to be a little bit weirder, this vision. This is the, the seven lampstands and the two trees, okay? So, again, I, I'm sorry, uh, let's see. Yeah. Uh, I'm, it, not the seven lamps, the golden lampstand and the two trees. Chapter 4. And the angel who talked with me came again and woke me, like a man who is awakened out of his sleep, and said to me, What do you see? So, so he, remember, this is all these visions are in one night. He keeps getting woken up and taken through this stuff. Okay? He says, what do you see? I said, I see and behold a lampstand of all, gold, all of gold with a bowl on the top of it and seven lamps on it with seven lips in, uh, on each of the lamps that are on the top of it. And there are two olive trees by it, one on the right of the bowl and one is on the left. And I said to the angel who talked with me, what are these, my Lord? Then the angel who talked with me answered and said to me, Do you not know what these are? I said, No. <laughs> Would you just tell me, please? And then he said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel's the governor now. Okay. So we've had Joshua, the high priest. Now we have Zerubbabel. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. That might be the most important verse in the whole book, verse 6, chapter 4. Not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of the hosts. Verse 7 Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel you shall become a plain, and he shall bring forward the top stone amid the shouts of grace, grace to it. So look at that. Um, Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel you shall become a plain. Did Zerubbabel flatten the mountain? No, no. Zerubbabel was just standing there while the mountain got flattened. But I've, I've, I've heard people say, Zerubbabel flattened the mountain. No, he didn't. Zerubbabel can't flatten the mountain any more than I could flatten Squaw Peak. Okay? He didn't do it. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house. His hands shall also complete it. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. For whoever has despised the day of small things shall rejoice and shall see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. These seven are the eyes of the Lord which range through the whole earth. So you can see that picture of seven eyes being carried forward from the last vision. Then I said to him, What are these two olive trees on the right and on the left of the lampstand? And and a second time I answered and said to him, What are these two branches of the olive trees which are beside the golden uh, two golden pipes from which the golden oil is poured out? So he had to ask him twice. And he said to me, Do you not know what these are? And I said, For the last time, No, I don't know what they are. Would you please? I'm, you know, throwing a little extra in. And then he said, These are the two anointed ones who stand by the Lord of the whole earth. So what's going on here? Like I said, the key verse is verse 6, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit. Uh, we're getting ready to do Jonah after Easter. We're going um, to finish Love Walked Among Us. We'll have an Easter message. And then we're going to do Jonah for five weeks. And week three, we're going to do one verse in Jonah. And that's Jonah 2.9, Salvation is the Lord's. We're going to do a whole sermon just on that. Okay? And that's essentially what he's saying here in in, um, chapter 4, verse 6. It's by my spirit. And not only that, it's not just salvation, but it's sanctification too. We need to remember that grace is not just for salvation, but it's also what empowers us for sanctification. And for Zerubbabel, the governor of Judah, if it were up to his power, he could never flatten a mountain. I already mentioned that. But God is the power, he can do it. And the oil... The oil coming from the olive trees is symbolic of the the Spirit. Whenever you hear of oil in the Old Testament, there's usually an allusion to the Holy Spirit in the midst of that. Also wind, wind and spirit are similar. in, In the Hebrew, ruach, it's the same word. So these trees supply the oil or the Spirit to the lamps, and it's the Spirit that powers the lamps. It's the filling of the Holy Spirit that empowers you and me. So i just stop here and just say this. When you get into this stuff, you begin to realize these visions aren't quite that goofy. When you understand them in context and you understand what all the references are, that's reference ending with N-T-S, okay? They're constantly referencing something else that those people got. They didn't need a commentator to be able to, Read these visions or hear these visions spoken about. We're the ones that need that. This is also, this vision is also a call to Zerubbabel to tell the people to keep building the temple. So now this is where Zerubbabel really begins to coalesce with Haggai, his contemporary, the other prophet. Haggai was all about, let's, come on, let's get the temple finished. This is where Zerubbabel now joins Haggai and says, we gotta get the temple finished. Let's get going. Okay? Keep going. At, and really, what God is saying is when you complete the temple, people will look at that and say, there's no way you guys did that. Only God's power did it. Okay. Now, those of you that know the story behind the acquisition of this property, that's the same thing. All right? That, that, there's, there was no human that could work hard enough or be smart enough to figure out how we could end up with this property in the financial position that we're in. And for those of you that don't know the story, um, this property was in escrow for five million. And the the church that had it in escrow for five million decided to pull out of the escrow because they wanted the gospel to continue on this property and they wanted a church to have this property. And they knew that no church could pay what an upscale condo developer was gonna be able to pay for this property. And they sold it to us for a million one. 000, 000. And I've had people in the business in this congregation uh, tell me now that the, the property now is worth way more than the five million, even. It's, it's a pretty amazing story. Now, we had to raise another couple of million dollars to be able to you know, redo the property because they hadn't done anything to property for decades. But nevertheless, n- nobody could have arranged that. Nobody saw that coming. In fact, if you've heard me tell the story, I was so tired, I, that's a, that, that sounds really pejorative, and I don't mean it pejoratively, but I was really, weir- I, let me say weary, I was weary of people walking up to me saying, because we were renting our, our, our place over at 42nd Street and Thomas, and we needed to get our own place, you know, because that place was tenuous, we were on a month-to-month, the parking was horrible, all that stuff, okay? Okay. Um, I was weary of people walking up to me saying, I found a property for us in Arcadia. And they'd give me the address and they'd tell me to go look at it and, you know, it's, it's a seven-story building that was selling for $20 million or, 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 or it was uh, a quarter of an acre with a house sitting on it, okay? I don't know what we were going to do with that, okay? So this guy walks up and... and um, He'd been around about six months, he and his wife walk up, say, I got a property for you, and I was like, I did that whole facial management thing, great. And inside, I'm going, i got to go check out another property, you know? <laughs> so, yeah, he gives me the address, and I'm like, that's like 33rd Street and Camelback, I have no idea what he's talking about, you know? Um, that's how bad the frontage was, was on this property. You think the frontage is bad now, you should have seen it before, okay? So I I drove past it the first time. I have no idea what he's talking about. Anyway, then I came in and I saw it. It's like it's a house with a building next to it. That's what I saw from the front. So here we go again. But I dutifully turned in over here, which was this really narrow driveway that you could not get a a legitimate uh, um, modern-day fire truck through. Okay, So the whole place was a fire hazard as it is. Okay. But I was able to get my car. I was able to get my little Jetta in there. So I drove in there and then got back here and I was like, oh, wow, there's all this property back. All this pro- For Arcadia, this is all this property, okay? I know it's not like for New River, but for Arcadia, this is like all this property, you know? And then the first building I walked into, I thought, well, this is the sanctuary. It was their youth room, but it was set up like a sanctuary. And I'm like, Well, we could get about 40 people in here. So if we ran like, let me think, let me do the, 12 services on Sunday, we could do it, okay? You know, I had no idea that this building was here. You know, anyway, total God story. We end up with this property uh, like that. That's what Zechariah is getting at, is that he wants to make people, make sure that the people understand that when something gets completed, they can't point to any human beings. They have to point to God. They have to point to God. And like I said, there's more of the eyes of the Lord. He sees everything. His, here you go. His video cameras are everywhere. That might help you, okay? It'll either creep you out or that'll help you with this idea. And then he talks about the plumb line. This is, in the Old Testament, a plumb line was a, um, like a, um, a favorite way to talk about how people would be measured against the Word of God, okay? So a plumb line is an ancient level. Okay, I'm, I'm acting like I know what I'm talking about, but um, uh, the, the church I was at before, uh, there was this, uh, this old guy, one of the great old saints of the faith. His name was Harvey Howard. He had to be in his mid-100s when I got to know him. I mean, this guy was old. I mean, he was old, but he was still puttering around and stuff, had his own house. Um, and how many of you saw Grand Torino. Okay, so he, he was Walt, but he wasn't Walt. You know, um, Clint Eastwood's character. Okay, he, he didn't have the disposition of Walt. He was the opposite of Walt's disposition. He was the nicest, sweetest guy in the world. I'd go over to his house and sit, and we'd talk, and he'd give me iced tea and stuff. But he had this garage that was just like Walt's in Gran Torino. He had every possible tool. Even if he never used the tool, he had to have it. So he could draw an outline on it on his little pegboard and everything. I mean, he had it all. Anyway, so he heard me teach out of Amos one time. And Amos has a plumb line. And he brought in, this is an old plumb line. I'm not going to, the string must be 40 feet long. But it's an old plumb line. You just hang it and it's like a level. Okay? And it's ancient. So anybody ever seen a plumb line that looks like, okay, yeah, so I'm not the only one. Okay. Well, I, I never did any construction. Jackie does all the construction. I do the laundry Around our house, if, if he had like an old iron or something around, I would have been really excited about that. I would have known how to use that. But anyway, he, he said, I want you to have this. So I've, I've, I've had this ever since. I've probably had this almost 20 years now. Anyway, so, and I have it so I can, whenever I'm teaching on plumb lines, I can show you what a plumb line is. Okay, I actually, I think, I think Zechariah had this plumb line at one time. Look how old it is. Okay. So anyway, that's a plumb line. We're all going to be measured. Fortunately, we're now going to be measured uh, using the righteousness of Christ as our measurement. Okay, so if it's just us, we're, we're in trouble. But Christ has imputed his righteousness to us, so that's what we're going to get uh, measured against. But think about all the times, again, in the Old Testament where it talks about measuring people. You know, it's, it's, um, it's uh, Daniel chapter 5, the writing on the wall. You know, my favorite verse, many, many tekel parson. You look it up. That's what it says. Okay? And what what that means is you have been measured and you have been found wanting and your time is coming. And he was talking to the king of Babylon at that time. And sure enough, that night, that's when the Medo-Persians came in. They came in that night. That night they were having that big party. Okay? So thankfully, we're measured by the life of Christ now. And then the last thing about this vision that I think might really jar your preserves, if you've ever had your preserves jarred, this will do it, okay? At the end, the two anointed, here you go. It's the priest and the governor. Now just stop and think about the implications of that, especially in our current context. The priests and the governor are supposed to be working together, they're supposed to be working together. Here you go, not as a theocracy. I'm not advocating for a theocracy, but this whole idea that we've got of separation of church and state has been taken way too far and was never intended to be taken that far. And by the way, is isn't even a constitutional idea. It was found in a letter of Thomas Jefferson's. But this idea of separation, I'm not saying that the state should be the church. That's not what I'm saying. But for crying out loud, to just jettison all of those principles, it's foolish. It's foolish God is saying, look, the priest and the governor really should work together. How many of you watch Blue Bloods? Okay, it's, it's when the governor, I'm, I'm sorry, it's when, it's when the mayor of New York and Frank Reagan actually work together on those rare occasions where they get along, right? Usually they're fighting with each other. But God wants them to get along and to work together and to support each other. Okay? When we completely divorce ourselves from biblical truth and a gospel-centered ethos, and worldview, it's going to have disastrous consequences. So here's our key takeaway from this vision. We live by the Spirit of God, not our power, not our foolishness, not our agendas. It's the second time I've done that in a week. Not our desires. (laughs) Not our agendas. This must be something Freudian going on with me. I will admit, I am in the middle, Uh, I just actually, I've got like three pages left, I'm reading uh, Ryan Anderson's book, When Harry Became Sally, so that should explain why I, anyway, so, all right, I can't wait for the movie to come out, by the way. Um, One of the consequences of this is that we will become a light to the nations, the last vision for tonight and this is the flying scroll. I know some of you are like, I'm just coming to this series to hear about the flying scroll because that sounds pretty cool. And actually the most, the weirdest vision is next week the the, you know, the women in the basket the women in the basket and the two other women that carry the basket away. That sounds like a lot of fun. Anyway, here you go. One through four. Again I lifted my eyes and saw and behold a flying scroll. And he said to me, the angel, what do you see? And I said I see a flying scroll. <laughs> You're really bothering me now, angel, all right? Um, Its length is 20 cubits and its width is 10 cubits. Then he said to me, (laughs) finally he just offers the information, okay? Uh, This is the curse that goes out over the face of the whole land. For everyone who steals shall be cleaned out according to what is uh, on one side, cleaned out. A better word there would be banished. Everyone will be banished, okay? Okay? who who steals shall be banished according to what's on one side, and everyone who swears falsely will be banished according to what is on the other side. And I will send it out, declares the Lord of hosts, and it shall enter the house of the thief and the house of him who swears falsely by my name. So you see we have steals and swears falsely and then thief and swears falsely. So there's a this little thing going on here. And it shall remain in his house and consume it both timber and stones. So again, I don't think this is a very hard vision to understand. It's just a little bit weird. The scroll is God's judgment on all sin. And uh, in, in terms that we might understand, it's, first of all, it's unrolled. So it's not a scroll that's all rolled up flying around. It's unrolled. So you can read it. And it's 30 feet by 15 feet. And, and it, essentially covers the earth, you know, there's this weird, it's covering the earth, flying around, everybody can read it and see their sins listed. So as it flies over me, it's going to list all of my sins. And I know uh, Steve Wheeler, who's an elder, he's here tonight, If, if he senses that the scroll is going to be flying over me, he's going to run over here and try to see what it says about me while whiting out what it says about him, okay? So essentially that's kind of how that's going to work. Okay, but we'd hate that. Wouldn't that be awful if, it, if this thing was flying around, just kind of testifying to all of our uh, sins? So this is the opposite of virtue signaling on social media. Okay, now this would be like uh, one of those weird Twilight Zone scenes where you're typing into one of your social media platforms something wonderful that you did, okay? So you're signaling your vir- virtue, but as you type, your sin is coming out. In, in cyber, so you, you, And you try to erase it, but it won't erase. And as you type more, you're typing, I did something good, and it's typing out your sin. No, you did something bad. And everybody's going to see it. Okay, That's essentially the scroll there. And the scroll symbolizes the totality of the judgment on sin. Number two, a call to righteousness. And number three, a reminder that in every sin, there is a false witness. There's a false witness in every sin by us, but there's a false witness by the tempter trying to get us to engage in the sin as well. So the false witness in us is denial and blame shifting and rationalization, right? Every time I teach Genesis 3, I say this is a picture of what it looks like for us. God comes to the man. He says, the woman you gave me, what, not my fault. It was, it was the woman and it was you. And he goes to the woman, Satan deceived. It was, wasn't me. It's never us. Blame shifting, denial, I didn't do it, or rationalization. Okay, here's the reason why I did it and I had to do it, and it makes sense if you understand from my perspective why I had to do it, and so it's okay, all right? And then the other false witness is the guarantee of fulfillment that's going to come if you commit the sin, right? And then you commit it, there's no fulfillment, and really all there is is the accusation. You're just left with the accusation. So, all kinds of false witness in the sin. So, totality of the judgment of sin, call to righteousness, and a reminder that in every sin there's a false witness. And also, it, it's a fact that it will consume any house. It's a clear, uh, that by consuming any house, it's a reference to the comprehensive and complete nature of God's discerning judgment. You and I never judge and discern perfectly. I don't know if we realize that, but we don't. We think we do, but we don't. But God does, and there's no escape from it. If you want a really good picture of this, um, read Romans chapter 1, verse 18 through the end of Romans 3. That'll give you a really good picture of our understanding of rationalization of sin and God's perfect judgment of all sin. From whatever perspective, whether we're pursuing immorality or hypermorality, we don't judge properly. So then there's the steals, it swears falsely. Or don't be a thief and don't swear falsely. Um, so the stealing is symbolic of sins against others, and the swearing falsely is symbolic of sins against God. Okay? Usually by invoking God's name. So again. Peter tells us in 1 Peter chapter 4 that we are to be self-controlled and sober-minded. That's a shorthand way of saying don't sin against others, self-controlled, sober-minded. Be filled with the Holy Spirit so that you don't sin against God. So that you're under the influence only of God. You're not worshiping your false gods. Paul says it this way in in, uh, Ephesians 5. Do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. Okay, he's, he's not saying don't drink a lot of wine. He's saying don't live your life under the influence of anything other than the Holy Spirit filling you. So you can put anything in there for wine. Don't be drunk on on wealth. Don't be drunk on status. Don't be drunk on on power. So it's comprehensive. But here's the thing. I've thought a little bit about this. I, I I think I might be right on this. If there is a God and there is, I believe there is, okay, but if there I'm speaking hypothetically, if there is a God, okay, wouldn't we want one that doesn't change, that isn't shape-shifting? Wouldn't we want one that we can count on, even if we don't agree with him? Wouldn't you want one that we could count on? Because that's the God we have. But people have a problem with that. They haven't thought this through. They haven't thought this through. That's that whole idea of trying to Um, recreate God in our image, okay? Um, We want a God who's sovereign and perfect and we can count on, even when we don't agree with him, okay? Uh, The other thing is it's interesting that the dimensions of the scroll 30 by 15 are the same as the tabernacle in the wilderness wanderings. So this is, again, an indication of God's total sovereignty. We said that was one of the main themes of Zechariah. So far, then, I would say that this vision right here, the flying scroll, vision number six, um, has the most to do with God's sovereignty. So here's one other thought I'll leave you with uh, tonight. We live in a culture that hates judgment, right? We don't, don't, we live in this don't be judgmental culture. The greatest sin is to be judgmental or, or intolerant, Okay. But I believe that if you gave people in our culture a choice, they had to pick either judgment or consequence for their actions. I think they take judgment every time and not consequence. And, And now you see, that's what happened when Jesus went to the cross, was our sin was judged there so that we would not suffer the eternal consequence. See, I'm telling you, if you just think this through, some of this stuff through with any level of depth, but people don't think deeply about these things anymore. You know? Uh, yesterday I was in my COM 100 class. I was stunned. I was stunned. I brought up Aristotle's name. Five people out of 28 knew who Aristotle was. That was a world record for me. Five. Usually, usually I get zero or one. And then the, then, then the follow-up question, the follow-up question is an absolute disaster. When did he live? In the 1950s. If, if, if people just don't know. I, we're not, and here's the point. Not to make fun of college students, although they're crying out. Anyway, um, not to make fun of college it's, it's to help us understand we're not thinking about things anymore. We're not being taught how to think about things. We're not asked to go deep. Okay? So the gospel is exactly that. It's the idea that, that you're going to get the judgment without the consequence, and somebody else is taking the judgment for you exactly what people want, okay? So the vision here is telling us there's no place to hide, but that's actually good news. If there's a God that you can't hide from, there's also a God who can redeem. If there's a God that you can't hide from, there's also a God who can redeem. So why not take the redemption? So I'll say it again. We, I think we can see how what people would describe as an obscure and difficult-to-understand prophet is actually pretty relatable to our present day, right? It's um, um, Tom's old saying, um, if I can remember it here. Uh, Yeah, God is timeless, and a timeless God never produces dated, dated material, okay? No matter what we read in here, we can apply it in context, certainly, but we can also see what God has for us here today in, in, in the gospel. Okay, So next week what we're going to do is we're going to do vision 7 and 8, and then there's um, like a summary, a little summary section at the end of 6 of, of all of that. And then um, chapter 7 and 8 is what I call uh, the James true religion parallel. You know, at the end, towards the end of James chapter 1, he talks about what true religion is, and Zechariah in 7 and 8 sound a lot like, almost like an explication of what James wrote, even though Zechariah did this um, almost 600 years before James wrote his letter. So a little bit in reverse, but it's this idea of true religion. So that's what we're going to do next week on the 3rd. And then on the 4th, we have um, backstories with Michael and, and Eric. Let me pray. Uh, Lord God, we thank you for your mercy and grace, and we thank you for uh, a word that can, can often seem mythical and convoluted, but then when we really dig in and we're willing to just do a little bit of work, we discover that this is absolutely beautiful literature, it's great rhetoric, it tells an amazing story, and, it, and it's one that we can apply to our lives today. So help us to do that. We thank you for the gospel of Jesus Christ. We pray that your spirit would fill us at all times Um, that that, um, your spirit would be those two olive trees filling us uh, so that we can burn brightly for your gospel. We pray that in Jesus' name, amen.